Hey, this is Carl. Before we get started, I want to make a request of you. If you feel that our little podcast in an even more little corner of the internet has improved the quality of your life, will you please go right now to donate.2keto.com and support our efforts with a pledge of $10 a month. You probably spend more than that on coffee or Netflix. Where do you rank 2 Keto Dudes in the list of things that bring you joy? 2 Keto Dudes has always been an edited show. We don't want to just turn on the recorders and post everything warts and all on YouTube. That's why our guests like to be on the show. So that costs us money for audio engineers to edit our shows and a professional hosting service to keep our shows online. Plus, we can say whatever we want and not have to worry about YouTube taking down our content. Ivermectin! <laughs> Sorry, Fable. <laughs> we hope to keep the show free of advertising. So that is why this show has always been listener-funded. How can you help? Please go to donate.2keto.com right now. And thank you. Hydroxychloroquine! Sorry, my hives were playing up. <laughs> Hi, I'm Richard Morris from Canberra, Australia. In 2014, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. After taking the dietary advice from the Australian Diabetes Association, I became more diabetic. I did oh. some research, which led me to the ketogenic diet. Spoiler alert, I reversed my type 2 diabetes by drastically reducing my carbohydrate intake and increasing my consumption of healthy fats. In 2016, I was determined to help my buddy Carl by showing him what I did and the science behind it. Hey, that's me. I'm Carl mm -hmm. Franklin from the United States. I also used to be a type 2 diabetic, but not as severely yeah. as Richard. I devoured all that information Richard sent me, and after a mutual mm -hmm. friend went keto to address prostate cancer, I also went on the ketogenic diet. That was in February of 2016. By April, I was in full swing reversing my diabetes. We're not doctors and we don't give medical advice. We're right. just a couple of dudes on the internet who reverse their diabetes by following a ketogenic diet. And we just want to share our experiences and what we know about the science behind the ketogenic diet. Yeah, so we started this podcast to chronicle Carl's journey and to provide solid information to people who are curious about this dietary lifestyle. Right. And now we have over 200 podcast episodes, some of which have been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times. And also, after epically failing on Facebook, we moved our online community to the ketogenic forums, where tens of thousands of people now share their experiences. We also founded an annual ketogenic festival called KetoFest. Carl and I are both software developers, so uh, we found ourselves at software conferences several times a year, and we tend to gravitate towards those conversations that happen in the hallways at conferences. Sure, the talks are great, but it's a community that we enjoy the most. Right, so KetoFest is a conference to discuss the latest research of the ketogenic diet, and it's also a festival celebrating the ketogenic lifestyle. And uh, you're going to want to stay tuned for news <laughs> about the next KetoFest. So, Carl, what is a ketogenic diet? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time you finally admitted it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Leave that in. Just, <laughs> just to prove I that we actually to say have that. editors. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that. It's a diet where instead of burning sugar and starch for energy, 
Our cells preferentially burn fat. That produces molecules called ketones that our bodies use for fuel. Right. Our main molecular fuels are glucose, which we make from carbohydrates, and fatty acids, which we make from fat. Our cells have two modes. In one, they burn glucose and make fat, and in the other, they burn fatty acids and make ketones. But you don't have to eat a high-fat diet to be ketogenic, right? Well, when you're starting out, you may have to, and then in a few weeks, as you become better adapted to burning fat for energy, when all of your calories come from fatty acids, the amount that you need to eat becomes coupled to satiety, which integrates not only the variable amount of energy your body needs to run every day, but also the amount of fat that can be drawn down from storage. So how many carbs do we need to restrict ourselves to in order to get into that state? It depends. Some of us who are metabolically disordered may need to get below 20 grams a day. Someone who is quite metabolically flexible can probably eat as much as 100 grams a day. How about other things like protein, minerals, and essential cofactors like vitamins and essential fats? Well, you need one to one and a half grams of protein for every kilo of lean mass. And beyond that, you just waste excess by turning it into energy instead of using fatty acids. As for other essential nutrients, if you're eating fatty meats or eggs, plus a few leafy green vegetables, then you'll get most of those uh, because the organisms that made those foods have already concentrated essential cofactors. Ketogenic diets are varied and delicious. They can be vegetarian or carnivore, home-cooked or takeout, hot cuisine, hot cuisine, <laughs> or just bacon and eggs. As long as your carbohydrates are low enough. And if you're an absolute beginner, check out our Starting Keto podcast for more information at start.2keto.com. So how you been, Richard? Yeah, doing well. Lockdown's over and... Uh, we're uh, uh, the dog got to go to doggy daycare, so he was very happy about that. Um, and just you know, just working in the lab, the usual stuff. Did a couple of podcasts and um, and did some presentations. But other than that, cooking just, anything uh, delicious tonight? Um, I don't know what the plans are for tonight because I've got to go out uh, shopping for for meats for my because uh, we're out of meat. We've only got frozen stuff, so I want fresh. So. Uh, what I'll do is I'll go out and I'll find a meat that uh, that uh, stimulates me and I will cook a meal around it. That's the way that, to do it, man. It, that's It's easy peasy, isn't it? Once you yep. learn to cook, that's the cooking is the uh, secret sauce. Once you learn to cook, you can reverse diabetes. So. It's It sure is, man. You can't just skate through uh, the keto diet without getting in the kitchen and getting your hands dirty. No, that's true. Yeah. How about you, Carl? How was your week? Well, speaking of cooking, uh, this is um, a great weekend for me, and by the time everybody hears this, it'll be over, yeah, but I'm doing a keto mini-fest uh, tomorrow. We're recording this Friday night, my time, so it's uh, the Saturday, uh, the, the 23rd, and um, it's a Portuguese theme uh, this time. I, yeah, I went to Porto, uh, I believe it was in... 2018 uh, to do a, a software conference there, and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the, the food and the wine. The wine is just so good and so plentiful and affordable, and they, they just make it right there. They don't export a lot of it. Um, so so it's. I remember going to uh, a local grocery store and getting some exceptional charcuterie and like a three euro bottle of wine that was amazing. <laughs> three euros. <laughs> three not, euros. Not yeah, three maybe year old. Three euro. Three Sorry. euros. Yeah. So five bucks. Five bucks. Yeah. 
unbelievable. So anyway, so the theme uh, is Portuguese food and music. We're going to have Fado music playing. Uh, so this is what I'm making, chorizo. And the Portuguese chorizo I get is from Fall River, where Emeril Lagasse hails from. And uh, the big Portuguese community there, there's a little shop and they, they get their chorizo uh, locally. And I'm, I, I got this Azorean cheese. Uh, it's made on the island of Terceira in the Azores which is administered by Portugal. So I'm going to make some queso, some cheese sauce with that. Mm, nice. Yeah. And I'm going to cube up the chorizo, fry it up in butter and, you know, toothpicks and gobs of that cheese. And it's going to be a nice little appetizer. Also, uh, in Portugal, they love grilled fish everywhere. And sardines are the thing. Sardines, uh, a sardine isn't a type of fish, actually. It's a category of fish. So they usually are eight, nine inches long, you know, maybe an inch and a half tall. And uh, you, the way to cook them is just salt on a charcoal grill. You don't even need any oil because they're oily fish. How difficult is that? It's, <laughs> it really it's the easiest, delicious food you've ever had. So I'm also making cod croquettes. Okay. It's the first time I've ever made fish croquettes, but I've made fish cakes. So it's not really different, just shaped into balls. Also, um, Portuguese love hot chicken. You think Nashville has got hot yeah. chicken, the corner, but Portugal has been making this sort of piri-piri chicken for a long time. And piri-piri is like an African uh, pepper oil. So it's very hot, and I'm using Thai bird chilies for that. Uh, so those will be chicken thighs, you know, essentially like baked chicken thighs with a hot sauce. And also um, caldo viejo, which is a chicken stock-based soup that has kale and linguiça, and that should be a lot of fun. So this is what I'm doing. I'm After we record this, I'm literally going out to the kitchen to start prepping for tomorrow. And... Uh, that's it. So here's here's what I propose, because I think we're going to be talking to Nina for a long time. So I'm, I am I say we forego mail and yep. recipes. I'm up for that. Yeah. And let's just spend more time with Nina. So uh, in case you haven't realized, Nina Teicholz is our guest today. That's right. And uh, she's on the line right now. Hi, Nina. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. Hello, Carl Franklin. Uh, good day, Nina. Hello. Good day. <laughs> How are you on this fine morning in New York? I'm well. It's a beautiful fall morning, and I've been out walking my dog, and so doing all those things. Yeah. How about you all? Spring. It's been a long time, and I've been walking my dog. So, who walking our dog for a couple of years? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a dog. Is that what you're no, saying? I don't. I don't. <laughs> but, well, you know, we haven't spoken in a couple of years, and uh, things have happened. It's amazing how long it's been. 2018, June. In New yeah. York, we, we spoke. just the last time. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's just, and there's, I mean, there have been get-togethers and conferences. I don't know if either of you have been to any of them, um, but I haven't been back into the scene uh, I guess since March 2019. Yeah, yeah. Not since the plague hit us. The last, the last conference I went to was in Denver in uh, 
2020, March. And you got the last flight out, right? Yeah, the last flight back to Australia, pretty much. Oh, sorry, 2020, right. Oh, right, that was the, the, yeah, the that conference, was- the, the, the dubious conference where the, the criticized conference that how dare you head into the eye of the COVID storm and hold a conference <laughs> when everybody was fleeing out. Yeah. I haven't but heard of any, anybody. Yeah, nobody nobody got uh, coronavirus at the conference, as far as I'm aware. So, well, you know, well, getting I'm, dates and times confused is a, is the first sign that you have COVID. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know they had COVID. <laughs> so um, oh, anyway, yeah. So and and things are a little bit worse over in Australia in terms of lockdown, right? We're actually doing – we came out of lockdown on Friday, but we have – nothing much really has changed for us. Um, pretty much everybody is uh, working from home if they can until probably end of December. But we uh, we have uh, 99% uh, first shot uh, vaccination and uh, 82% second shot So in, in my state. So, um, yeah, we're pretty close to – we're pretty – we'll be 90% by the end of the – End of the uh, end of the month. Yeah, you guys do it right. You know, just well, get know about that. get it. Well, <laughs> we got lucky. <laughs> the approach is the approach is different, right? Than here. I mean, it's like, all right, shut everything down. It will will bite the bullet for a few weeks or whatever. Everybody will comply, and then we'll move on. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, it's not, not what, like the U.S. didn't have here. lockdown. The U.S. did have lockdown. Yeah. So. Right. Uh, Anyway, and I'm one of those people that happens to think that lockdown has a lot of, uh, does quite a bit of harm. So it should be, it should not be the first course of action. Yeah. It was never not going to do harm. It's the relative, the relative. Yeah. Yeah. Of not locking down and letting it rip. So, well, you know, I just read an article, um, speaking of the harms and also probably the topic that we could talk about is, um, you know, one of the things that happened, I don't know if it happened so much in Australia, but in the U.S., there's just been people gained a lot of weight. The amount yeah. of weight they gained was, I think, on average around 25 pounds on average. And, and that includes kids. Hmm. So obesity wow. rates really rose dramatically. And I just read a new study out that shows – I mean, this is not the first time. There have been many studies that have shown how much – dramatically worse COVID is for people with overweight or obesity. Yeah. And particularly obesity, it's like they're much more likely to get COVID. They're much more likely to have terrible symptoms. They're much more likely to end up in the hospital or die. And it's um and actually more tightly correlated with all those negative outcomes is is high blood sugars. So HbA1c right. is the most uncontrolled diabetes. Well, I mean, right. You know, we know that that's associated with, you know, with metabolic disease generally. So, I think the 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 one of the first studies that came out of Wuhan um, showed the highest correlation was uncontrolled diabetes and wearing eyeglasses. And the theory was, I, I, I never really understood the eyeglasses thing. It was something about catching it, catching droplets on your eyes. If you wore glasses, you, you're, there was a significant protection 
um, because everyone was wearing masks because oh. it's a polluted city. So they were wearing masks to get from the get-go. So their exposure was via droplets in their eyes. And so um, – but but type two diabetes was really from the get go. We knew type two diabetes was going to be um, uh, a, a significant um, cofactor. Or a you know, I heard that uh, about the eyes. Mm. That that the uh, the eyes were the the main way that you get COVID the, through, the whistleblower through your eyes. That, yeah, the whistleblower in Wuhan who who um, first started talking about this was an ophthalmologist who got it from a patient. Hmm. Staring, you know, looking through his right. device at their eyes and uh, up close and personal, and presumably they had to take off their mask and and he, Interesting. yeah, so he died. So we should all be wearing glasses, not not masks. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is that the, the I mean, there was that press release from Verta. They haven't done a study about it. I suggested to them two years ago in 2020 that they should be looking at this in their cohort of Sarah Halberg's people. Um, but they did a press release on the difference between the di- type 2 diabetics that they managed and the type 2 diabetics that, um, uh, I can't remember, was it Henry Ford uh, group, uh, hospital? Anyway, there was, a, there was another large group of, uh, of similar type 2 diabetics and the difference in the mortality rates between the two was remarkable. So it's not just, I mean... Being diabetic is bad, but if you can control your diabetes, if you can um, control your diabetes specifically here through a ketogenic diet, the the rates of uh, of death and and hospitalisation were almost the same as the general population of non diabetics. So you know, it's, uh, and yet, it's in, I don't know about in Australia, but in in the US, there's there's absolutely no conversation about trying to lose weight, improve metabolic health, control blood sugar cut back on sugary starchy foods hmm. as an intervention, as a preventive intervention to make people more resilient to COVID. Not a nothing, not a nothing. And then if and if you were to object, say, to one of the more absurd things was Krispy Kreme, which is a donut <sighs> chain, handing out, you know, first one, I think then it was two donuts if you got your vaccine shot. If you were to criticize that, that, you know, then that puts you how dare you? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, it was just, I remember just getting criticized or seeing criticism about, uh, oh, it's just, you know, it's everything in moderation and how can you be critical of something that yeah. seems so fun? And right. there was, in fact, one of the members of the U.S. Dietary Guideline Committee from, you know, from the last go around holding her box of Krispy Kreme saying, hey, this is such a great thing <laughs> on her Twitter feed. So I think, um, so I'm so disappointed that this factor that has clearly gotten worse, so we're less resilient to the virus now. In fact, one of the reasons the Delta variant maybe have have hit children harder is that children have gotten so have gained so much weight now. Um that there's really not any conversation about it. I mean I don't think I've heard the words obesity or diabetes um or heart disease come out of the mouths of any of our uh, this you know our leading politicians or even in our vitamin country. D, Nina. Right, I mean, that's something the rest of the, vitamin D. Yeah, the rest <laughs> well, of the world understands vitamin D. Yeah, I mean we have no. I mean we've we've got guidance for keeping um, uh, nutritionally complete. Yeah, you know, there's no reason to be deficient in vitamin D. We were told. Um, 
the other thing was that we had so we had fairly harsh lockdowns in Victoria, where which was kind of the epicenter of it was kind of our New York. Um, uh, for the, in the early phase, uh, you were limited. You couldn't go more than five k from your five kilometers from your from your home. And the only reason that you could go out, there were only two reasons to go out. One is to get fresh food, so you can go to sh- supermarkets to buy food, or you you can't visit family, you can't go to schools or work or anything like that, unless you're an essential worker. So the the two carve outs were: you're allowed to go out to the supermarket to buy fresh food, and you're allowed an hour outside to exercise, but you had to wear your mask unless it was vigorous. If you were running or cycling, you didn't have to wear a mask, But which is kind of it's kind of antithetical because, you know, if somebody's breathing, heavy, running and heavy breathing, they're going to be, uh, you know, producing more droplets presumably, but still um, they're moving quickly through an area. They're not ambling slowly through an area. But so the, there were carve-outs for... For the for the lockdown restrictions, specifically for trying to make sure that people don't um, get too obese, um, mm. uh, you know, from from eating takeaway food and uh, right. and uh, not exercising. So there was that, I guess. Right, but I mean, I think we all know the extent to which being depressed and bored mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> plays plays a role in in overeating. And we're all home and and not having contact with your friends or family. Yeah. is is depressing yes. it's just it just is depressing i mean i was able to pass you know to spend my lockdown in a lovely house in connecticut surrounded by forests and fields and go out walking and and um and actually the state of connecticut was relatively carl you can you can confirm for me your experience but i mean it was just it was just relatively calm the kids stayed in school yeah there weren't a lot of cases in in the area where I live. There was just not a lot of people were not wearing masks that much. People were getting together and having, you know, little small parties. <laughs> yeah, we had a bubble, um, we, a family we, bubble, and nobody got sick. I mean, we just right. it was um, it was just it was I think less intense than what other people suffered. But even so, the relative isolation that that. That pe- that I felt, and I know other people felt. I mean, and and the and the fact of just being home all day. You know, you're right next to the kitchen. Yeah, it's just, and you're, you know, you're with. You may or may not be with people that you want to spend as much time with. If you have that much time with, if you have children, they're stressed out going, you know, going to school online. So all of that was all. Those were big stressors. You know, we, we, we couldn't order out dinner the way we used to. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's, you know, those are the main reasons people eat. They're stressed and they're bored. They're isolated. They're not socializing. I, th- I so think I put on about five kilos, but but the nice thing about being keto is you can um, – so so I'm, I'm down 45 kilos from my maximum weight. Uh, I did get down to 50 and then I put five back on. But um, the nice thing about being keto is that uh, it's you can get fat on a ketogenic diet, but you're not going to get as fat as you will on a high-carb diet. And in yeah. my case, the difference is about 45 kilos, which is quite a significant amount of weight um, and quite a significant health impact uh, of carrying that weight. So, yeah, it's... Um, uh, you know, if you're ketogenic, you really have to cook for yourself because it's very difficult to eat out and get ketogenic food. So sure it's kind yeah. of nice little ketogenic bubble for me, at least. You know, 
um, it, it actually it, it was survivable. I can't imagine what it would be like if I didn't cook and if I was going out every day to get takeout. And, uh, I would have been a yeah, mess. <laughs> it'd be hard. I put so on half the weight I lost too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of people learned to make sourdough. I'm, I'm, sourdough bread, <laughs> apparently that was a thing during the lockdown. So I wonder if they also took the opportunity to do to take cooking lessons. Yeah. It's just one of the things you could do at home. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we did, yeah. I mean, we did a lot of, we, actually, we just grilled. Yeah. <laughs> that was nice. mainly our cooking. <laughs> but, but, um, but uh, yeah, I put on a few pounds myself. I got good at... Uh, I got good at certain areas of software development. I had a lot of time to uh, do research and made that work for me. That's good. Yeah. What can you do now? Uh, you know, well, you know, we didn't have Keto Fest last year or the year before yeah. that, actually, for a different reason. But uh, we're going to do it next year. And uh, this is the announcement. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, so we have That's a website good. right now at ketofest.com just to collect names and email addresses of those who are interested. And we've got a few people who have said yes. I'm looking at one of them right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. Yeah, and it's going to be in October 2022. Assuming the Australian government allows me to fly out of the country, I'm going to be there as well. Yeah, I mean, I have a similar problem, Richard. I'm supposed to be speaking in Norway uh, at the end of the year, and right now American citizens aren't uh, allowed into the EU. Wow. Mm. American citizens aren't allowed? Yeah, I think uh, uh, from what I read, uh, you can't you, – they, they'll turn you away at the airport. Even if you're vaccinated? Even if you're vaccinated. Canadians wow. can go can get in but right now they don't want any u.s people (laughs) sorry when did that happen i went to greece this summer uh it was august 30th that the united states was removed from the european union's approved list of countries for entry uh only a little more than um two months after it had finally been added to the list and now they're back to letting americans in so oh good so I think there was a certain amount of tit for tat on that because the U.S. had not been allowing people yeah. in. Well, anyway. So, well, that's good. So you can go to Norway. So now I can go to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. What are you going to speak about? Oh, I'm. it's a software conference. So I'm going to speak about how expensive everything is. <laughs> Starbucks coffee is fourteen bucks or something. It's crazy. No, in Norway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. for two. Well, they got pretty much universal basic income there. So I mean, the 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 people of Norway own their oil. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Teslas are the most popular. Yeah, sports the, car. The, yeah, hundred percent of their cars are electric. That's, that's that's the first world first world problems right there. <laughs> Right, exactly. So, Richard, what's your research? What have you been doing? So, I I, I graduated uh, my degree in biochemistry. I went back for more damage and got an honours degree um, in computational chemistry. Uh, I did a I published. Oh, I'm a co-author on a paper um, 
examining the biophysical properties of the epithelial membrane. Um, so I'm a published peer-reviewed scientist now, which is cool. Congratulations. Thank you very and you, much. And you did get your – you got your PhD with honours. Not my PhD, right? my undergraduate with honours. Oh, your so undergraduate with honours. Okay. And now I'm starting a PhD. So. Oh, Okay. All right. But that's that's you know it's it gives me a gives me a platform at least now I'm a biochemist a peer reviewed published biochemist so there's that's that excellent. Um, so what is your enough. can you explain your paper in lay terms? So you'd probably be interested in the one I'm working on right now, which was the subject of my honours degree, um, and that is um, the biophysical properties of the inner mitochondrial membrane. Uh, uh, in response to treatment by fatty acids in the diet. So I had, uh, I, I went to, I basically did a lot of literature research to work out what lipids are in a, bio, in, in a mitochondrial membrane. This is the membrane where we make all of our energy. And uh, so there's, a, there's like 90 different kinds of lipids there phosphatidylglycerol, phosphatidylcholine, um, cardiolipins. Um, uh, can you, this, this can you name all 90 of them? I can <laughs> and name go. most of them. <laughs> and go. <laughs> and go. So, so the interesting thing, so I, so I started out with, okay, what's in, a, in an inner mitochondrial membrane in a rat's liver? And it, and it turns out that Thomas Afried actually has done some of, the, some of the basic research in this stuff, which was really kind of cool because I get to cite him in my paper, which is, that's cool. Nothing to do with keto, just... He also uh, expressed interest prodigious. in coming to Keto Fest to speak. Oh, Wouldn't that good. be cool? That, that, is, that is awesome. So he, he actually helped me a lot in the uh, – I sent him an email and said, you know, do you have any more information? And he put me in touch with all of the experts in uh, mitochondrial membranes in the world. And so essentially what I did was I built, I built a model of this membrane in, in a computer and I simulated it over uh, 30 microseconds to um, – to look at um, how the membrane moves, uh, what what kind of um, uh, the the membrane thickness, the the area that's tended by each lipid, and the d diffusivity of the lipids. So basically, how they move around in the membrane. And uh, I ac I had four different dietary treated. Um, uh, uh, I had data from from a study that treated rats with different kinds of lipids. Uh, dietary dietary fats, and so one rat. Uh, so the, the, all, all four, there were basically four cohorts, four groups of these rats, and they were all given a zero fat diet with fat added. And the fat that was added in each of the four cases was different kinds of fat. So one was um, uh, one was safflower oil, nothing but safflower oil. So their diet was a low fat diet with extra safflower oil added. And then the next group was a low-fat diet with olive oil added. And then the next group was um, a low-fat diet with fish oil added. And then the third was, um, uh, it was olive, safflower, um, fish oil. <sighs> you need a saturated, saturated fat. One. Well, the fish oil was the only one that was saturated. The, you know, they, don't, they don't even feed rats saturated fat because, you know, dietary guidelines. Um, <laughs> but, Are you serious? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there was no. Well, there's a little bit of saturates in olive oil, I think, tiny bit. There, but anyway, there, yeah. yeah. So, so there was there was two two. Uh, so olive oil is ma mainly palmitic acid. I mean, it's mainly um, it, it's uh, palmitic and oleic, so a, a, a saturated and mono and monounsaturated fatty acid. 
um, safflower linseed. Linseed was the other one. So there was two two plant oil diets. So safflower oil, which is 18,2 linoleic acid, and then uh, linseed, which is um, uh, lots of uh, polyunsaturated um uh, uh, omega threes, um, and then fish oil, which f- surprisingly, fish oil had the most saturated fat. And then I realised, of course, it's an animal fat. What am I talking about? Of course, it has a lot of saturated fat. So anyway, um, the, the 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 study will be coming out, and I'll be able to talk a little bit more about the actual biophysical changes. But the interesting thing was the baseline rat. So this is the rat that wasn't given any different dietary treatment, just regular rat chow. Mm-hmm. And the rat that had the low-fat diet with safflower, the properties were almost identical. Hmm. So that tells us that all a lot of the diet, re, a lot of the research into rats, um, uh, these rats being fed safflower oil because it's a nice cheap oil to put in the diet, and suggests that um, the uh, if we're using these rats uh, as a model for humans, uh, then we may not we may not be getting useful information from them because we're feeding them a really unusual diet that uh, uh, that that doesn't map to what we uh, feed humans. And the interesting thing was what you eat ends up in the inner mitochondrial membrane. So this is inside all of your cells, inside an organelle in the cells, inside the outer membrane, there's the inner membrane that's this weird sort of alien membrane that is unlike any other membrane in your body. The fats that you eat in your diet end up in that membrane. Yeah, so, okay, so, like, for the basic person like me who's not sophisticated on on some of this, I mean, you're talking about every cell of the body contains a mitochondria. The mitochondria is where your... Ener- your ATPs, if you remember your Krebs cycles, yep. your ATPs are created. That's your basic energy being created in your cell. And it's the biggest thing inside of each of your cells. And inside the mitochondria is like this squiggly membrane. And it's a lot that squiggly. It's like a, it looks like, a, you know, one of those um, sour fruits that's kind of rolled up like a, <laughs> like a ribbon. Okay. It's like a ribbon that's kind of like yeah. folds back on itself, right? And that's where the um you know the electron chain they pick up the Krebs cycle happens and it picks up electrons. So and it has long been um I mean this is an area of research for uh Dr. Kate Shanahan where she talks about how the especially unsaturated plant oils, vegetable oils but particularly linoleic and linolenic, which um, are the two major ones that you find in vegetable oils, that these are causing um, actually damage the mitochondria. They damage that membrane. That is her. That is that is her research or her her, her reading of the literature, I guess, and that it causes cell death. So, so I think this research is really important because you're getting right to this question. Michael um, Eads also, right? Does uh, Michael Eads also does research um, into how these oils cause insulin resistance. He he did a talk that was using uh, information from Petro Dombrowski, who's a, an English uh, vet who has the protons theory, uh, proton series of uh, Hypotheses talking about the kinds of uh, fatty acids that we metabolize 
uh, affecting um, re reactive oxygen species and, and how that feeds back into generating um, type 2 diabetes. It was an interesting, it was a fascinating presentation, but I don't think he's doing actual research into it. Yeah. Okay. The uh, so so can we assume that um, Mediterranean rats are the happiest rats? <laughs> <laughs> Probably yeah, because not. <laughs> they're getting well. Yeah, I mean they're producing the bet. They're the most efficient mitochondria. Let's put it that way. Probably because they have oleic oil. I mean, olive oil is oleic oil, and so that's not as poly. That doesn't have as many double bonds. It's not as easily oxidized. And fish oil. I would call that, you know, you know, right in the Mediterranean camp. Those are unsaturated. Yeah, fish fish oil has a lot of unsaturated fats in it. It's mostly unsaturated. Yeah, but the thing that, well, I don't know, the clinical trials on fish oil have never been successful at showing that it can protect against heart disease. I mean, we're talking EPA and DHA. So those are the fish oils that you take in little capsules, and they've had, to my knowledge, three really large long-term clinical trials um, where they just couldn't show an effect, a protective effect of these fish oils. And I think the complicated thing about the literature is that there are, that there are some intervention trials, clinical trials that show that, but seem to show that, that when you eat fish oils as part of fish, so there's something about eating them in the context of the whole food, which, Shocker. which yeah. <laughs> that it does help. So, yeah. um, so I would say, but I would say that it's, and, and, and there's a kind of a interesting ironic twist to all of this is that the people who are eating fish oils, if you're eating fish oils, the, the folks who manufacture fish oils have to go out and suck out of the sea, all the tiny little fish like anchovies. Um, this is what happens in Chile. I visited one of these plants where they, they just, they just haul in all the anchovies well, what does that do? So it takes away the food source for the larger fish yeah. that people might eat. <laughs> Not to mention the bird life, and you know, it, it's it's sort of like the the base of the pyramid of that whole ecological system. So it's really ecologically damaging, and it removes or it it reduces the availability of of fish, Makes larger my Caesar fish salads that salads more expensive, right? Which means you can't even get the food where you could actually benefit from those yeah. fish oils. Anyway, it's a mess. It's, it's, it's because of, it's the same reason that we have linoleic acid in the food supply uh, because corn is cheap and, and, you know, and soy is cheap. It's cheaper to harvest small little fish like this because they have more oil to everything else ratio than big fish. Big fish have less oil to, you know, to lean mass and, uh, than, right. than small fish, and the reason why um, fish, the reason why I mean, fish are, are cold blooded and they live in the ocean, which is uh, colder than than room temperature in the in the land for at least half the year, and uh, fish to to re retain fluidity um, in circulation. You 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 want to you want uh, in in your membranes you want to have more polyunsaturated fats at a colder temperature. So if you're a, if you're a warm temperature animal, you can have a lot of saturated fat and and you know but you you know butter will melt on a hot day. Butter won't melt in the ocean <laughs> unless it's really warm. So you know the the saturated fats uh, are likely to um, 
to stack and become less fluid. And so fish, I mean, it's, it's all regulated systems, but fish create these um, these extra polyunsaturated fatty acids partly as a way to, to survive in like colder temperatures. So, but, you know... So by we that theory, yeah. I should be walking around like stiff and rigid from the saturated fats thing. I can't fats. bend my arm because yeah. I'm right. all these saturated fats. Turn my blood well, to you putty. Know, it, it's not just it's not just what you eat. You can also um, you can desaturate. You have desaturated enzymes that will take a saturated fat. If you've if your fat's starting to get um, you know if the temperature's dropping and your fats are becoming too rigid, you have enzymes that will. At turn a palmitic acid or turn a turn a stearic acid into an oleic acid by desaturating it by right. taking from an eighteen zero to an eighteen one. So mm. you know it's um, uh, we are we are magical biological systems with uh, all these right. enzymes that regulate everything. So it's not right. just what you know. It's just that's the word that right. came to but- my mind. Magic <laughs> body is just magic. magic. <laughs> but we can't do everything. Like we can't take short term. Like you know when you you get those omega-3 um, eggs in the supermarket and they've given them flaxseed or something um, in their diets, right? And those are shorter chain um, omega-3s. That's the shortest chain omega-3. Well, your body cannot. Most people have almost zero conversion of that shorter chain omega-3 into the longer chain ones. So your body can't do everything. I mean- it can't like it. It can do a lot with some of the raw material it has, but it can't change everything into what you need. It's also not used to people shooting omega three into eggs. Yeah, well, it's the it's the feed. I think it's the feed. Right? Yeah, so it's if the you feed in the chicken feed, yeah, Ch- chickens are little dinosaurs. They will they will eat. Uh, they'll eat if if you let them loose in the paddock. They will forage for bugs, yep. and they will get a lot of uh, of uh, long chain omega three fatty acids. Uh, from eating from eating bugs and and the like, um, so it's a healthier egg to get a pasteurized egg than it will be to get one that's been f- fed linseed. Or even in Europe, you can get eggs that have been fed um, shellfish, um, uh, you know, that are too small for sale, and those eggs are quite high in 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 longer chain um, polyunsaturated fatty acids. So their omega three eggs are slightly healthier than than ones. Uh, that have been created in it by by giving chickens yeah. to eat. Well, speaking of non sequiturs, um, Nina, it's been a while since we talked to you about your um, your work trying to get the U.S. government to um, you know re- change the guidelines, the dietary guidelines, and you've got a lot of infrastructure. Uh, working behind the scenes and you know we've uh, talked about it on numerous occasions and it's been a couple of years three three years since we talked about it three or four years what's the latest um well let's see the nutrition coalition which is a nonprofit organization um, that i run is is dedicated to trying to um, ensure that our nutrition policy is evidence-based, which means it's based on rigorous clinical trial science, and um, which is implicitly <laughs> a statement about the fact that it's not currently based on mm. rigorous clinical trial data. Data, I think, pretty much everything, uh, every recommendation is is based on predominantly observational evidence, um, which we know is a weak kind of data that shows association, not causation. 
So, and we focused on the dietary guidelines because they're so enormously powerful. They, they, every day I learn more about how, how very powerful they are. They, they basically determine all federal, all of our country's um, feeding programs. So school lunches, programs for the elderly, feeding programs. Um, military. For women and infant children, the military is required. I mean, all all government agencies are required to follow the guidelines. And then they're just sort of considered the gold standard. So they're downloaded by dietitianists, dietitians, nutritionists, doctors, nurses. I mean, they're sort of, that's what's sold in, that's what's served in hospitals and in cafeterias. And so they're really influential. Um, and, uh, the, the food and drug administration, the FDA follows them. So just recently we've, we heard that the FDA came out with, uh, new requirement, they're voluntary requirements, but they're nevertheless, their recommendations to the food industry to lower the salt content of all their foods. Um, which will, I think it's fair to say, probably have a, a detrimental effect on health. Because if you look at um, the literature on salt, there's just, a, well, we can say that it's disputed science, but there's a large school of, of thought supported by quite a lot of data showing that if you eat too little salt, that your risk of poor cardiovascular outcomes, heart attacks, death, all of it goes up. So it just sort of what we think of as a J shaped curve. Like there's a sweet spot of three to five milligrams, I think, of yeah, yeah. consumption of salt. Of sodium. It, sodium. Of sodium. Of sodium. So salt's double that. Yeah. So sodium, so that if you go too high or too low, your risk of cardiovascular disease goes up. So that's it. That's just another non-evidence-based recommendation. Before we get off that topic of salt, what what I understand, and from talking to people like um, you know Dr. Fung and uh, who's a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, so the kidneys are you know primarily what was filtering out salt in your urine. Uh, for those people who are metabolically healthy, um, the kidneys uh, flush salt, and so you need more, right? And for those who are typically following the standard American diet, um, tend to, you know, salt tends to be held in the kidneys. Is, it, is that right? The kidneys don't flush salt? The hyponatremia of starvation. So people on low-carb diets will tend to flush more sodium, so they need to eat more salt. But, um, yeah, people on a high-carb diet, um, they, they retain they retain salt. And so... Um, right. And so that's it's kind of, you know, it's like a chicken and egg thing, to use the metaphor. Well, the, the study that Nina, the study that Nina uh, uh, was talking about, the Pure study, was in 18 countries, quarter of a million people, and uh, they didn't look at the uh, they didn't they didn't correlate the salt intake with um, with the types of diets whether these people were on lower or higher carbohydrate diets. Right. I think that would have been interesting. I mean, I would have Absolutely. loved to have seen uh, Salim Yusuf's uh, study sort of uh, quantized by um, by by carbohydrate availability in the diet to work out whether you know the people who were on a low carb diet, who had a salt, had a high or low salt intake, were particularly um, susceptible to cardiovascular disease. So that would have been interesting, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in general, I think low carb, 
the low carb, uh, the number of people eating low carb diets is, is still probably relatively low in most countries. And so capturing that in observational studies has just not really been possible yet that I can see. I mean, there's, um, there's been an attempt, I think, uh, a little dishonestly to say, to take some observational data, like from the, from the um, 70s or looking at, you know, looking at the nurses health study out of Harvard and say, oh, we, you know, our, we're, we're looking at just the low carb people, but there weren't that many low carb people. And then they define low carb as like 40% of calories as carbohydrates, which is not a low carb diet. So, That's ridiculous. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think you can get, I mean, maybe now in the United States, if you were to take a sample of people, you could get, if you, if you got enough people, you could have a true low carb sample. But um, in most of these, you know, I mean, when you're talking about study countries around the world, they're very, you know, you're not going to go to Malaysia, I don't think, no. <laughs> find a right. keto population there. Right. You might find a meetup group. But um, yeah. anyway, so I think that- um, But people eating carbs, you know, probably should limit their salt because they've already got too much in their system. This is what I'm saying. And this well, is the fat diet. Much, so yeah. 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 Uh, well, the interesting, well, what's interesting about um, um, so Yus, uh, Dr. Yusuf's work is that is, and his work is is it's not just that data is not just from the pure study. There are multiple studies that have found that same J shaped curve in terms of response to sodium. He says he says that no matter where you go, people pretty much uh, they have they have a very strong homeostatic response and they they in other words they just eat the amount of salt that they need yeah so people are they eat almost everybody in the world no matter what you tell them they're eating (laughs) what they need their body somehow senses it Mm. and they they eat it i mean they 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 either their their food suddenly tastes you know like it needs salt and they put salt on it or they avoid something salty so it's, it's kind of astonishing, actually, how powerful that is, because we certainly don't do that with a lot of other things in our diets. Well, if you think about it, we're the one of the only intelligent animals that have the conscious ability to say, you know, I think I would like X, whereas, you know, bear doesn't eat leaves because he's worried about cholesterol, you know. Right. Thank goodness. <laughs> bear it just, it tastes doesn't good. get the Harvard... Doesn't get the Harvard Health newsletter. Yeah. So, um, so back to the dietary guidelines. So, what happened? The the last thing, really, the big thing that happened is that the last iteration of the guidelines came out at the end of 2020, and um, they were, I would say, uh, pretty much the same kind of sort of disappointment. So, mm. you know, the same they. They, um, even though the expert committee recommended reducing the uh, level of sugar down to 6% of calories, the current cap is 10% of calories of sugar, and the expert committee recommended lowering it down to 6% of sugar of calories. And, um, and the USDA, you know, that expert committee hands over their scientific report to the staff at USDA and HHS. That's the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Health and Human Services, two agencies that co-issue the dietary guidelines, and they rejected that recommendation. So, and they rejected it um, not with any explanation, but, you know, my speculation, we could, it's just a speculation, but the, 
USDA especially is, you know, they ha- there's a tremendous amount of influence from the food industry in that agency. I mean, just to give you a sense, like they have a partnership with um, PepsiCo to serve, um, to package and serve stuff to kids at lunch, like, you know, crap, potato chips and all kinds of things that are just um, – highly processed crappy foods. Uh, I'm sorry to use the word crappy. That's not really. Uh, I would use stronger language. And, (laughs) and they have a partnership with Domino's pizza to provide pizza. And they work with Unilever. So they just, they're, they're, they're an agency. And this has been recognized since the very start, since of the guidelines in 1980, where they said, look, you're an agency that your goal is to promote American foods uh, and at the same time, you're telling people to restrict some foods over other foods. So they have this kind of conflict in the agency. The agency runs all these feeding programs. And so it really probably does make sense to partner with some of the big food companies to provide foods to, um, you know, all the schools across America that they need to feed. But in any case, those companies clearly have strong sway at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, yeah, otherwise the bottom of the pyramid wouldn't be grains. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the top people in the guidelines um, at USDA, she came straight out of the corn syrup uh, association. Um, and so, I mean, you just – you just how, so there's just, how does anybody an in the corn syrup association sleep at night? Seriously. Yeah. Do we need well, corn you know syrup? Is now? Do you know where she is now? She's the head of the um, – a little, not very well known, but very powerful, the Institute for Shortening and Edible Oils, which is the trade group that makes all the vegetable oils in the world. Yeah. Crisco. She's big Crisco now. She's now, she's big Crisco. <laughs> yeah. That's a rap name. <laughs> so, yeah. It's so, Crisco so, time. So it's, the, <laughs> the guidelines were not, so I would say that, you know, I, let me just give you some other highlights of them. So they were supposed to review the low-carb diet for the first time in the history of the guidelines. Right. They said, um, and you, you really can't make this stuff up, they said they could only find one study, one clinical trial on low-carb diets. And that was a study that had as an author one of the members of the Dietary Guideline Expert Committee, so you couldn't really ignore her study. That was But every, every <laughs> other study they said they couldn't find. Whether it was due to their search criteria that somehow was designed to exclude all low-carb studies. Clearly, they don't listen to two keto dudes. They don't listen to two keto dudes. And I will tell you that there were something like 4,000 unique public comments that were submitted to during this process, um, according to a paper I just read. And I know that because of work that our group did that probably about 3000 of those came from our you know our members people who follow us on on social media i mean we got we collected thousands of them from people saying you know, we feel very strongly about the guidelines we don't believe they're right so there it's not like they're not hearing about um they're not hearing it's it they know these studies exist the, the, the majority of people who stood up and gave public testimony at one of their meetings were low-carb doctors, low-carb um, success stories, I guess. So they know about this, and the literature was submitted to them by a new um, advocacy group called Low-Carb Action, who actually submitted, formally submitted to them all of the low-carb studies uh, that would meet their criteria. 
So it was, that was just a shocker, you know, for them. It's like, it is, it is such a, an overt suppression of science to say, we don't, we just don't see it. We don't, we don't see right. the science. <laughs> they got their fingers in their ears and they're going, la, 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 la. Right. That doesn't work. So another really extraordinary thing about the guidelines is that they are truly only for healthy people. They're mm. not for people who have been diagnosed with any diet-related disease. And that was something that came up during the process. And our group talked about how, you know, how can we have a guidelines? The Congress has stated that they must be for the quote unquote general public. A report by the National Academies of Medicine said these need to be, we need to really emphasize that these are for the general public. The general public, 60% of America at least now has been diagnosed with one or more diet related chronic disease. Mm. If you look at that study from out of University of North Carolina that was based on government data, 88% of Americans have a have some kind of metabolic disease. So, you know, we have and yet, you know, we have these guidelines that really don't apply to everyone. We got to find that part of the population that isn't sick and make them sicker. And make them sicker. That's what we do at the government. <laughs> We're specialty. here to help. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, meanwhile, like you think about like the poor kids in school say now, you know, the, this recent sample that was sampled for this study I mentioned earlier on COVID, something like, like 62% of the kids are overweight or obese in this Hispanic population they sampled. Those kids are going to public school and they're getting a diet that is, is, is not designed for them. I mean, to it's put it lightly. designed for healthy people. Yeah. Not designed for healthy people, but, but, but like technically not designed for them. They did not even review the science. They don't look. So here's another weird thing they do. They say, oh, we look at the science on people with obesity, diabetes, but in order to fulfill their mission of prevention only, right? They're only looking at prevention. So <clears throat> they will take a study on obesity, but they won't look at the primary outcome of that study. They will own, in other words, they won't look at the outcome that the study was designed to study. Yeah. They'll only look at secondary and tertiary outcomes, which the study was not designed to look at. Clearly, they're cherry picking. <laughs> and it's not well powered for. You know, yeah. And it's not well powered for. And that's why they're doing that to, to somehow to say, we're looking at this literature and they can say it now. But what they're not saying is like, we're looking at this literature, but we're ignoring the it were the most important results. Do companies like Verda have any um, influence uh, with the guidelines more than, you know, um, a coalition of concerned citizens and scientists? Uh, they, Not that I know of. I don't think they're involved in and, advocacy work. And their studies would have been rejected because they're not uh, they're not uh, blind. Yeah, double blind. blind uh, right. No, it was so open label. They were open label, but they, I think they were randomized, weren't they? But they were open label, so. I, I think people chose their diets, yeah. which would be considered non-randomized. You're also relying on the people who in the study to report correctly what they eat. Well, that's common in clinical trials. That doesn't. That wouldn't. Oh, really? That wouldn't boot out a clinical trial. But the Verda stuff was they they would actually measure um, uh, uh, circulating blood ketones every day so uh, in their in the app so so they they that one of the strong strengths of vert and one of the reasons why um stephen finney makes the claim that that they have some strength that beyond randomization is that they're 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 testing dietary uh uh um 
Markers? Uh, uh, yeah, no, they're testing the adherence by 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 seeing if they're making cir- uh, circulating right. ketones. If, if right. you're making greater than 0.3 millimoles per liter of ketones, then you are by definition on a low carbohydrate diet. Mm. So. Right. I think there's also another argument to be made, which is so. First of all, they they, they could, if they had known, call it a cluster randomized trial. Yes. Because it was in the same way that PREDIMED, the famous Mediterranean study, was cluster randomized, um, which means you're randomized by your village, basically, or you're, okay. you know, you, and so, and that's pretty, that's pretty much what Ruta did. They, you know, they took the people in West Lafayette, Indiana, did it one way, did one thing, and the people elsewhere did something else. But um, they didn't know to call it cluster randomized. But I think it even more, but. To me, a more controversial yet more compelling point to me is that it's a it better reflects the real world where people choose their diets. So people sure. choose a diet because they want to follow it. And it's highly unlikely that um, so in a properly randomized study that, you know, somebody who wants to go low carb, if they're randomized to a vegan diet, um, it's highly unlikely they're going to really follow that diet. People people adhere to the diet that they want to to that they want to try, and it's a very different thing to want to try a low carb diet versus a vegan diet, which are maybe two of the top options out there right now. So, in some ways, the trial reflects the real world condition of selecting your own, um, you know, dietary or new, new lifestyle choice. Mm. So. Anyway, I think that's a, it's an argument that could be made, particularly in diet trials, uh, because it's such a personal choice. And one of the problems that diet trials all have is that people won't stick to them. Um, yeah. They don't feel compelled. I think I, if I were in a diet trial, I wouldn't. It would be hard for me to feel compelled to stick to a vegetarian or vegan diet. And and they have very low adherence. They can't. You know, they so when Verda had very high adherence. Um, hmm. Anyway, obviously, there's a lot of it's a whole yeah. complicated thing about how you get people to adhere to a diet. But just getting back to the guidelines, I'll tell you. I want to tell you just one, just a, one other thing, which is that the review on saturated fats was really uh, a fascinating review because they that that little subcommittee looking at saturated fats was led by somebody named Linda Van Horn, who has spent. Um, I think a 40, 50 year career trying to prove that saturated fats are bad for health. She was, she worked for many years with Jeremiah Stamler, which some of you will recognize as one of the, one of Ansel the sugar guy <laughs> closest buddies. No, it wasn't Stamler that you're thinking of Hegstead, I think. Oh, yeah, I am but sorry. Yeah. Stamler was from university of Chicago, a cardiologist, but he worked quite closely with Ansel Keys for a long time. Anyway, he was he's virulently against saturated fats, as is Linda Van Horn, who is put in charge. So a highly biased person put in charge of this subcommittee, really with no one to counterbalance her. There was, um, you know, I looked at that committee in, in close detail, and there really was nobody kind of on the other side of the issue. There was a woman who did consulting work for um, vegetable oil uh, <laughs> supplements and... Um, you know, I'm forgetting who else was on there, but it was a it was a it was a small and biased subcommittee, and they initially, I know from sort of inside information, they wanted to 
drop the current saturated fat limit, which is 10% of calories down to, they wanted to lower that down to 7%. And there was one member of the dietary guideline committee, Jamie Ard, who said, really, do we need saturated fats at all? Why don't we just go down? Who's to say it shouldn't just be zero. And, um, so, which is such a ludicrous thing to say, just in this, you know, saturated fats are in every food that we yeah, eat. Yeah, they're, they're in except, mother's milk, which is except literally. For, right. So, so except for sugar. Food. I think sugar right. is the only thing that doesn't contain at least some saturated fatty <laughs> acids. So, so I think that when we, our group um, was active in, in pulling together really top, top scientists, including four former dietary guidelines committee members. So people who had written the guidelines or not written the guidelines, written the expert reports that underpin the guidelines going back to 1995, there was somebody from two, the 2015 version, you know, they're issued every five years and they wrote a paper. They got together and we, we supported a meeting for them, but they themselves then got together, wrote a paper, um, that came out as a quote-unquote state-of-the-art review in the Journal of the American Car- College of Cardiology, which is a, a very prestigious quite journal, esteemed, yes. mm-hmm. quite esteemed, read by cardiologists who are considered to be pretty conservative on this issue. And that paper said there there's insufficient evidence to continue caps on saturated fats. The, uh, and it dealt with the LDL issue. I mean, it's a really amazing paper. Let me just say one more thing yeah. about it. It was named one of the top papers – uh, one of the five top papers of the year by the editor in chief of that journal. So, and yet, and that group also went and talked to high level officials at HHS and USDA, and they formally submitted public comments through the formal public comment sy- system. And yet, none of that was considered by this subcommittee. I mean, they ignored all that, all the science and all all the evidence. Um, submitted by by this group there is one thing that happened in 2019 that uh and i'll just mention it quickly the uh, american heart association declared cholesterol not a nutrient of concern for overconsumption that was from the 2015 dietary guidelines right that was the big right. thing in 2015 was that finally yes yeah i got the day wrong concern. Yeah. yeah. The AHA did precede them by by a couple of years i that they i think they they I mean, the way they did it was hilarious where they, it was not in the press release. It's not in the summary of the paper. It's not in, it's nowhere in the paper, except for in the, there's a table where, um, and there's a table where they're listing thing, you know, and they're about the evidence for them and it lists dietary cholesterol. And in the little box, if you go down, it just says insufficient evidence. That's it. Right. That's not it. a single <laughs> line of the paper, nothing. This whole new, like our new lifestyle and, you know, that had been a cornerstone of dietary advice going back to, for the American Heart Association, going back to 1961. Mm. So they just sort of tipped their toed themselves out of that one. And then the dietary guidelines dropped in 2015. Interestingly, we now are in a situation where they did another review of cholesterol, dietary cholesterol and they came out this time, so this is 2020, saying insufficient evidence mm. that dietary Good. cholesterol is harmful for your blood cholesterol, right? Yet, in their classic way of like, I mean, it's like Kafka-esque doublespeak. <laughs> they say a healthy dietary pattern is lower in cholesterol. 
based on observational evidence, even though they reviewed the more rigorous evidence and found no and and found it to be insufficient, they went back to their weak observational evidence and said, and, and really without any and and it was it it was just language put in there. It wasn't the result of any scientific review, and said that you know a dietary pattern tends to be lower in cholesterol. And so that's what they can point to. If you say, you know, you, you, you no longer have cholesterol caps, they'll say, ah, but we have this language. Isn't consumption of dietary cholesterol going down too? It has been over the last, over the last decades because we, you know, we eat, um, I don't know what the numbers are. I mean, you know, something like 30% less meat than we did red meat Mm. than we did in, in, um, in, sorry, in 19, from 1970 to 2015, I think, where yeah. consumption of red meats gone down by more than 20%. Consumption of eggs went down by almost 20%. Consumption of butter went down so by we should about be 20%. Healthy. So we should be, yeah, we should be getting healthier. You would think. It's so I, it's, strange. It's, what it's, a paradox. I wonder what could explain it. I wonder. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's, the, the whole saturated fat thing is ridiculous on its face because in the conclusion paragraph of the Pure study, they said there's no uh, valid uh, reason to keep dietary recommendations on saturated fat limits because um, they showed that it, there was no association with cardiovascular incidents. And in fact, there was a negative association with stroke. So right. the more well, saturated fat you eat, the less stroke you have. So, you know, I, I don't understand how they can continue so they to excluded, exclude they excluded that. The, they excluded the pure study because they said um, that we only that we're only including studies that are on um, basically, you know, first world nations. I forget the language they use. But, you know, wealthy countries that are more representative of our, our population. Even though the U.S., if you look at our health statistics, we're way down there. Yeah. far below most um, industrialized nations. But so they excluded the pure study on that basis. They didn't look at that evidence, but actually in a more recent paper. So one of the things that I did this year was, or the nutrition coalition did this year is that we, we helped develop a special issue in nutrients that was all about dietary guidelines and, and they're really amazing papers and great authors. And if there's a link in your show, I'd love to include it. But there is yeah. one that's very comprehensive and talks about all the evidence and why a low-carbohydrate diet should be one, just one dietary pattern that's offered by the USDA. The USDA, you know, they, the dietary guidelines has what they call three dietary patterns – U.S. style, Mediterranean, and vegetarian, and and um, they're pretty much the same. But it's it's, at, but this paper argues you should add low carb to those dietary patterns. Add a fourth dietary pattern, yeah. and here's all the evidence for it. And here it's a really excellent paper. It was led by Jeff Volek from the Ohio State University. There's a paper on sodium that was um, the first author is Andrew Mente, and that includes um, um, Salim Yusuf. That's and and that's sort of a whole overview of all the debate on sodium and where the evidence lies. And then, uh, and then there's a paper on saturated fats that um, I'm an author of. Uh, I mean, one of the authors, which I'm happy about. And that also is a, it's a great group of authors. And one of the things that we did, which is really interesting is that that was new to the literature is that we actually looked at the review that the, that Linda Van Horn and her, you know, that, dietary guideline committee had done 
we looked at their systematic review. I tallied up all the, the papers they had looked at and said, you know, all the papers and whether they had positive or negative outcomes for saturated fats, right? Did saturated fats cause heart disease in this paper? What was the finding? Yes, no, yes, no, yes. And it turns out that um, something like 85% of all the papers found, had no finding. In other words, either they, either they had saturated fats did, did not cause heart disease or they actually, the more saturated fats looked better. <laughs> so this is 85% of the papers that don't support their conclusion. In other words, their conclusion does not represent their data. So we have a little table on that that's pretty interesting. It shows, and it shows overwhelmingly that all the studies they reviewed on stroke show that the more saturated fat, the more protective your diet is. That's something that the Pure study found, but that's not the only study that's found that. There's maybe five or six papers that have found higher saturated fat is associated with lower stroke. So anyway, it's 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 really just tells you that there is just a there are bizarre ongoings in terms of the science, like ignoring the science, reviewing science, and then concluding something to the exact opposite of what the science shows. I mean, it's really pretty stunning. Is it corruption? What goes on to make those guidelines? <laughs> Is it? Would you call it corruption? Um, I don't. I don't know if there's an easy word to pin on it. I think that they are very attached to. There, there's probably a lot of cognitive dissonance. There's probably a lot of bias to maintaining ex the existing guidelines and not changing them. There's a lot of food interest for sure in that. And th that may be the dominant force. Mm -hmm. um, but they may not want to flip flop on the public and be accused of, of backtracking and, and potentially opening themselves up to lawsuits. Yeah. I, I really don't know exactly what are the most dominant forces, but they're definitely um, not conducting science by any of the rules as we know them or understand or them or the science. international community understands them. Yeah. And, and our group is, I mean, is a little bit of a plug. You know, we're the only watchdog group in the world really looking closely at, at, at national nutrition policy, especially our national nutrition policy. You can't find it anywhere else. I mean, we did things like we – did transcripts of all the public meetings, publicly available transcripts, and they then deleted all their public meetings off their website. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't even get them. They, they didn't publish transcripts until weeks later. I don't even know if those are available on their websites anymore. And, and I don't know if I would trust them to actually, um, to accurately reflect the, the conversation, mm. you know, which had a number of embarrassing statements. Um, you know, like one of them being, you know, don't you think, you know, we don't deal with, we don't offer any advice about weight loss. And, you know, given the obesity rates in America, don't you think we need to explain a little bit more to America why we're, why we're not offering any advice on weight loss? That was the question somebody raised. Don't you think? Hmm. Anyway, we, so we're really the only watchdog group really just just monitoring the process and you know, seeing what happens and understanding where the science has you know, not been rigorous. Um, yeah, yeah. Your, your group is the most important in the world and the, the reason is that all of our dietetic uh, guidelines are based on the, on the results of the American 
um, um, dietary guidelines. I mean, we, we're not going to redo all of that research. We're not going to spend all the money to redo the research. We being Australia. It's already been done in English in Australia. I mean, yeah. and and I, I assume in England and Canada and New Zealand and the rest of the English-speaking world, if it's already been collated for us in English uh, by a reputable organisation. So, so a watchdog that is holding that organisation to account um, even if it's not not even if you know the the degree to which you can hold them to account is limited by their inability to 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 change course um it, it's an important role that you, you you're doing so i thank well, you for I that hope so. I, I mean, you. I submitted to your I submitted to your dietary guidelines as a biochemist, citing my references, and then I did the same in Australia. And um, you know, I'm, I've been ignored in two countries. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. No, I mean, it is. It does take. It's going to take something more than just you know they 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 sort of tout the fact that they have these open public processes and they you know take advice take input from the public. But then they just ignore it. Hmm. They just ignore. They obviously just ignore it. So, and they ignore the letters and they ignore the write-ins. And it, so, it's obviously going to take something greater. I mean, we've made a real start, I think, in in just sort of opening up this area for discussion, getting a lot of um, media attention, you know, quite a bit. Um, but it's it's just going to take more. I think it really will take more political power. It will take it will take some real. It'll take more to make this a really central issue in the country. I mean, you know, you'd think like with eighty-eight percent of people having metabolic disease and the tremendous cost that that, uh, in terms of human suffering, but also the financial cost of the country, you'd think that there would be more incentive to really address this. But the forces on the other side are are huge. I mean, you've got big food, big pharma, um, you know. And well, that's that's enough. But yeah, you, that's there are enough. other forces behind <laughs> <Yeah>. them. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got twenty twenty five now, so you've got four years now to get some purchase. You've got a, a, a leave a long enough. Yeah. Now you just need a fulcrum to to rest it against. So, you know, that's um, it, it, it's a big job. I don't envy you the task, but you know, I I wish you the greatest of success. As do I. It's necessary. We have nobody else. There is nobody else standing on this parapet. Um, uh, and and so you know, it, it's very important what you do. So you know, don't feel disheartened that you're not getting well, the results in the first five years. I know that you, you'll be still there in fifteen years pushing. Oh yeah. And well, you know, and I I'm think grateful. the group will still be there, and I'll definitely be involved That's, in some way. Sure. I may no longer be yeah. the director of it. I think that there's. I think uh, you know personally, I am going to try to do more writing and more journalism, write another book, and I'm and I. I'm actively fundraising for the nutrition coalition because I think that the group needs to live on. Absolutely. There's no question. There's just no group like it. And, and this policy has to change because, you know, until it's, it's, it has like vice like control on our whole, all of our nutrition recommendations and what, what people think is a healthy diet. So, you know, it has to change. By the way, if you go to Google or Bing and type in Nutrition Coalition, the very first yeah. thing you get is an ad called Coalition Nutrition Official for lifters, by lifters, and you have products. That's not you. Oh. So it's nutritioncoalition.us. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And we want to encourage our listeners to support the Nutrition Coalition. It's probably the most important 
uh, thing that you can do if you are woke about um, the about the you know the benefits of a low carb diet and the detriment of the the standard dietary guidelines and uh, donate do it now. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there anything so, else on your mind that uh, you want to talk about before we hit the big red button? Um, well, I'll just mention the, the one other paper that is in this um, series um, in the nutrients um, special issue, which I think is a great paper that everybody ought to know about, which is um, by a Danish group of researchers, and it's on processed meat and cancer. Um, as we all know, uh, the WHO and sp the specifically an agency in that called IARC um, declared in, um, I think it's 2015, maybe a little bit later, that, uh, that processed meat was a probable cause of cancer. Yeah. And they and did that, that. Like smoking, right? I mean, like the, smoking. The, the, press, right. the, the nutrition press said it's just as bad as smoking to have processed meat. And I want to know exactly right. how many cigarettes. And if you have smoked processed meat, well, that's <laughs> right. even worse. Yeah. <laughs> if you rolled up your salami like a cigarette. <laughs> um, it's hard to light, though. So, so that, that pronouncement was based entirely on as. Uh, I think people know on observational studies, again, they can show association, but not causation it, that, that um, the process ignored a couple of clinical trials that found to the contrary. In other words, people who had reduced processed meat did not see a reduction in their um, risk of cancer or actual cancer. And this is for colorectal cancer. Um, and, uh, and then the relative risks for people who understand that about observational studies were for, for processed meat were 1.18, where the number one means zero association. <laughs> <laughs> no, tiny, so, yeah. I mean, that's just tiny, 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 tiny. Um, in other words, like it's so small as to be non-existent. But anyway, they, the, the IARC made this decision um, many people consider it to be flawed. But what this paper does is super interesting because that it takes all the observational studies on processed meat and colorectal cancer and they run them through this, um, you know, basically through the test that you're supposed to apply to observational studies. Is there bias? Is there, you know, are they, have they accounted for confounders? If, I mean, there's just like a number of things they use something called the grade method, which, um, which is a way of grading data, right? It, it tells you about the quality of the data. And at the end of, they found something like 130 papers, 22 of them uh, actually met the criteria. In other words, they actually were, of, they actually had some the methodological rigor that's required. And 20 of those were on actually on cancer. And they found those papers did not find a, an effect of processed meat on cancer. Mm. Um, and in fact, the more rigorous ones showed, um, as particularly on cancers of the digestive system, showed a kind of reverse effect like that, that, that meat may be good for you. Um, so in Another other words, shocker. the more rigorous, to, so it was really sort of saying, look, we're going to take out the good evidence here and see what the good evidence, the rigorous evidence that actually meets qualitative standards. Objective what does that evidence show? Right. Objective qualitative standards. What does that evidence show? No. 
so when, you know, we, so, so it's a great paper. I mean, it's very clear. And it just says, you know, we, we, we sorted through the data according to proper, you know, internationally recognized standards of, of data rigor. And this is what we found. Hmm. Anyway, it's a good paper and we can link to that too, if you like. We will. We definitely we will. will. Well, uh, Nina, uh, this, it's been great catching up with you and uh, can't wait. Well, great catching up with you guys. Can't wait to hang out in October 2022 at Keto Fest. All right. If not before, if not before. maybe we'll see you. Okay. <laughs> Great talking <laughs> to right, you. Thank you. And seeing you. All right. Take care. So, Carl, you know how we have this new segment called Malaki? Yeah, so you say. I miss bullshit, man. Well, I decided to change the name because calling it bullshit was going to make it more difficult for our listeners to share it with their families. But... Are we still going to talk about bullshit? Oh, yeah. It's full of bullshit. Well, I'm good not saying bullshit on the pod then and calling it malarkey instead, as long as we both agree it's all bullshit. Right. This malarkey is 100% bullshit. <laughs> it's a good thing we're not going to say bullshit <laughs> anymore. We're getting it out of our system. So what malarkey do you have for us today? Today, I want to talk about the cause of type 2 diabetes and uh, post hoc logic fallacies. That's different from type 1 diabetes, right? Yeah. Diabetes organizations tell us that type 1 is an autoimmune disease often happening to juveniles, and there's some genetic component. Right. It used to be called juvenile diabetes, and most people afflicted with type 1 came into contact with some pathogen that they made antibodies for, and those antibodies, however, got their wires crossed. And instead of just recognizing some proteins on the pathogen, they had an affinity for either the patient's insulin proteins or the beta cell in the patient's pancreas that make insulin. So you have a bad flu, and then a couple of weeks later, you're unable to clear glucose from circulation. Glucose goes sky high, and then you start running on fat, and ketones go sky high, making your blood acidic. And if you don't diagnose the problem quickly, it can be really fatal. Yeah, I recall episode 59 from 2017 yeah. uh, talking to Ian Kelly, my friend. And while he couldn't prove it, uh, he said that he went to the doctor for like a just a regular antibiotic. Yeah, for a tick yeah. bite. Um, and then doxycycline or something like that. And then 30 days later... Uh, he basically learned he had type one diabetes, and and there's the the thirty days was a magical number. I think if it was, you know, the doctor said usually it takes thirty days for uh, type one diabetes to express itself. What happened thirty days ago? And it was to the day that he had that shot. So, so I, I but that's not the kind of diabetes we have, right? Type two diabetes is a, a lifestyle disease, right? Don't we do that to ourselves by eating too much and not exercising? And eventually we get obese and then we get type 2 diabetes. That not that what the diabetes organizations tell us? Oh, that right there is the first bit of malarkey. Malarkey. That's a, <laughs> that's a classic case of the post hoc ergo propter hoc logic fallacy. Don't, what? <laughs> that's the fancy Latin name for it. But the English translation is after and therefore because of. It's when you see two events happen and you assume that the one happened first must have caused the second one. Right. So let's say you hear a rooster crow every morning and a few minutes later the sun comes up. You might assume, well, that rooster is able to cause the sun to rise. 
But if you think about it, there could be another explanation. Maybe the rooster has better eyesight than you and can see the faint approach of dawn while to you the night is still black. Well, you know, in that case, the rising of the sun causes the rooster to crow. Correlation doesn't equal causation or... That might be one powerful damn rooster. <laughs> exactly. And in this case, the rooster's crow is obesity occurring before your doctor notices you're diabetic. Yeah. But because we can see obesity sometimes five years before doctors notice our blood glucose rising, well, then it's a natural mistake to conclude that we, you know, obesity must cause type 2 diabetes. So what is causing type 2 diabetes then if it's not obesity? Well, an American army pathologist named Joseph Kraft looked at blood tests from 14,000 individuals and discovered, well before glucose rises, sometimes a decade before insulin rises. And because we traditionally don't look at insulin because it's a fiddly immunoassay test that's really quite expensive, uh, we don't notice because uh, to really see the results, you have to take a sequence of five of these insulin tests every half an hour after a challenge meal. But we can easily and cheaply measure glucose. And when that rises a decade later, now we have a clear diagnostic signal for type 2 diabetes. So we are literally like the drunk looking for his keys under a lamppost because that's where the light is good for seeing despite losing them somewhere else. Does that mean that it's a change in the insulin response to a meal that causes high glucose 10 years later? Right. And it causes obesity five years later. So chronologically, obesity occurs five years before a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, but it doesn't cause it. This rooster does not summon the sun. Oh, well, I didn't like that rooster anyway. <laughs> so how does insulin cause obesity? Insulin, as you know, is the master regulator of energy substrate. It tells our cells what fuel to use. When insulin is high, we burn glucose and we make fat. And when insulin is low, we burn fatty acids and make ketones. So Dr. Kraft was able to see patterns in the secretion of insulin after a meal that predicted whether somebody would become a type 2 diabetic 10 years later. When you eat a meal, insulin goes up to tell your cells to use glucose first, and once the glucose drops, insulin goes low to tell your cells to burn fatty acids. The difference between a type 2 diabetic and a non-diabetic is that the type 2 diabetic makes way more insulin and it stays up for much longer. So type 2's ability to switch from glucose to fat is not as flexible. Your non-diabetic friends, after eating the exact same meal, may be back to normal in two hours, whereas your insulin may be elevated for six hours. And because we've all been trained to eat three meals a day plus you know, mid-meal snacks, we could have an elevated insulin all day. Well, that is some malarkey. <laughs> yes, it sure is. Because it means that we're making fat all day and not burning fatty acids. If your meal is 50% fatty acids and 50% glucose and you can't burn fatty acids, then you'll only have half the available energy from your meal. What do you think that causes? I reckon that might make you want to eat snacks between meals to get more of that glucose. Right. You end up eating more calories because only half of your meal in that example can be turned into calories that you can use for energy and half of it can only be stored. Ah, so I see how this process could cause obesity, but that doesn't explain how your glucose rises a decade later. Mm. I've, I've heard of a theory called the personal fat threshold, and this is where you keep putting on body fat until your body fat can store no more calories, and then that fat overflows into your circulation and some magic happens because insulin wants to get energy out of circulation, and then glucose goes up. Personal fat threshold is total malarkey. Oh! 
That comes from the observation that not everybody who is obese gets type 2 diabetes and not everybody who gets type 2 diabetes is obese. So let's say that you really, really, really want to hold on to your bias that type 2 diabetes must be a lifestyle disease, that type 2 diabetics must be doing it to themselves by becoming fat first. You need to come up with a reason to explain why some people don't get fat first and some people get fat and don't get diabetes. So you have to invent some special property of humans uh, that determines at what level of obesity they get diabetes, since you're wedded to the idea that fat causes diabetes. Mm Mm-hmm. So first, you need to invent some new biochemistry about insulin's role being to clear energy from circulation. By the way, that's not how any of this works. You should never yeah. have too much or too little energy in circulation. That's kind of the, the point of having a circulatory system to move energy from tissues that store it to tissue that use it. Insulin's primary role is to switch from cells running on fat to cells running on glucose. Anyway, their theory goes that you get fat first by eating too many calories and that fat has the most calories. Remember, this is the dogma, so you have to start with this. Eating too many calories causes diabetes. Hmm. So once you get fat, your fat cells fill up and then there's some personal fill line that's unique for each person and once you get past that, fat overflows into your circulation. Then your pancreas notices that and it says, wait, there's all this energy hanging around, so we need to make an extra dose of insulin. But your fat cells are already full, so they release more fatty acids. And now your pancreas makes more insulin and your cells get tired of hearing about that insulin signal all the time and they get resistant and now they won't transport glucose because they're insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. But in that scenario, you need someone overproducing insulin to be getting fatter and fatter because their fat cells are insulin sensitive and then suddenly becoming insulin resistant once they hit capacity and then you get diabetes, high glucose and high triglycerides. But what this model cannot explain is that people who are overproducing insulin have high triglycerides for the entire journey, not just once the fat cells overflow. And triglycerides are extra fat in lipoproteins floating around in your bloodstream, looking for a place to go. Yeah. The reason our circulation is full of fatty acids isn't because we are eating too much fat, but because we aren't burning fatty acids. Right. We can't pee out fat. The only way to get rid of it is by turning it into energy. And that's what a type 2 diabetic is. Someone inhibited from using fatty acids for energy because their insulin is elevated. Yeah. Well, okay, but why does glucose suddenly go up after a few years of being inhibited from burning fatty acids? Well, the reason's complex, but essentially fatty acids back up when they're not being burned. They're stored locally in the cell in lipid droplets, in circulating triglycerides, and in fat cells. And the reason glucose goes up in the latter stages of this is that those cellular storages of fatty acids, the lipid droplets, they compete with glucose transporters for a membrane fusion protein called SNAP23. Oh, SNAP! Oh, SNAP. So (laughs) essentially, the more lipid droplets in your cells, the less glucose transporters you can get to fuse with the cell membrane to import glucose. Glucose in circulation rises, and so our pancreases make more insulin, further inhibiting you from burning fatty acids. Yeah. In software, we'd call that a positive feedback loop. (laughs) Yeah. It's a horrible way to control the system, but all you have to do to release the inhibition on burning fatty acids um, is to lower insulin, and you can take control entirely away from this positive feedback loop. Mm. So if you're a type 2 diabetic, you can reverse your disease by keeping your insulin as low as possible 
and eventually you'll get control of your glucose and lose some weight. And a ketogenic diet is the most sustainable way to chronically lower insulin. So I guess the answer is keep calling keto on. And that's no malarkey. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope you get as much out of this information as we do in putting it together. And you know, as I said before, Two Keto Dudes doesn't take advertising revenue. We have no benefactors with hidden agendas. That's right. It's listeners like you who keep our lights on. And there are a few ways you can support us, all of which are listed on our website at donate.2keto.com. Thanks again. Yeah, and we'll see you next time on Two Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.